I just have to start this morning by, um, by bragging on you. Uh, after Jason's message last week, and it was a great message, wasn't it? A little bit long, but it was great. Um, but uh, after his message last week, we had more people show up to the next step table and go online to sign up to serve than we have ever had in the history of our church. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. What a privilege it is uh, to pastor a people like you, so committed to pursuing life and mission with Jesus, that you would give your time and your energy to serve uh, here at, uh, at Fellowship Greenville. And so, yeah, thank you so much for your willingness to serve and uh, in all the areas of ministry. I'm so, so grateful. Also, just to brag on Jason a little bit, uh, you know, he's been at, at, here at Fellowship Greenville now for just over a year. Uh, August was uh, his one-year anniversary, and he liked to tell people he's no longer the new guy anymore. And uh, I'll tell you, the plan that we are working uh, for him to become the directional pastor in uh, January 2024, that plan is going very, very well. I've already turned over to Jason the leadership of our all-staff meeting on Tuesday. He leads our executive team, and um, I just want you to know he's, he's knocking it out of the park. Um, I go to our uh, upstate church collective meetings, and there's about 10 or 12 people in there, all with different responsibilities, and Jason is the guy who's leading it all, and just about every time I'm in there, I lean over to Rob Marks, and I say, isn't this guy amazing? Like, look, look at what he's doing here. It's just, it is, it is really, really am amazing, and Jason has put together a very solid plan and process for spiritual formation here at Fellowship Greenville, which includes bringing like community groups and men's and women's studies and care ministries like Regen and Reengage and Stephen Ministry and Deacon Ministry. It's all tied together for the first time in the history of our church into a comprehensive whole. And he's doing a great job with that. And then I, I, again, I tell you, the boy has been busy since he's been here. And we're so grateful. And I wish, uh, would like for you to join me in just saying how much we appreciate you. And um, I love co-laboring with Jason. And I look forward to many, many years, more years, Lord willing, for us to be together. Now, this morning, we're beginning a new series entitled... Putting Faith into Action is based on the teaching that we find in a little New Testament book written by the Apostle James, um, the book of James. And so let me tell you what we're going to be talking about. A while back, Karen and I got the clean stuff out and get better organized bug. And really, I should say, Karen has a bug all the time, but it takes me a while to catch it. And uh, so it was really Karen, but uh, the first thing that we tackled was our closet, and in our closet on one of the shelves, we have this uh, three-tiered Lazy Susan kind of thing filled with all kinds of medicines, like tubes of different creams and bottles of pills, and so essentially the Lazy Susan is our medicine cabinet. And the thing about most of our medicine cabinets, and I bet this is true for most of you, is, uh, is you can go to your medicine cabinet, and there's lots of stuff in there that you originally purchased to help you but if you took them now, they would kill you, right? I mean, they've been in there so long, they're, they're probably toxic. And, you know, you pick up one of those bottles and you look at the date and you go, wow, that was from the Nixon administration. 
And so, um, now I thought about this the other day as I was thinking about our study in the book of James, and it occurred to me that buying medicine and believing in medicine and telling other people about how great a particular medicine is and even understanding how that medicine interacts with your body, that medicine will do you no good unless what? Unless you take it, unless you take the medicine. And in fact, that's true of any product you buy or any gift that you're given. Um, even if you believe in it, and understand how it can help you and help others, even if you tell other people about the benefits of it, the product won't do you one bit of good unless you use it. Now, 2,000 years ago, the apostle James recognized that there were a lot of Christians who had, to put it rather crassly, they had received the product and they had believed in the product and they were telling others about the product. They were learning uh, about how the product should and could work on a weekly basis, but these uh, were believers who weren't actually using the product. And so James writes this letter primarily to a Jewish Christian audience who had been scattered across the Roman Empire because of intense persecution that broke out against the church. And James wrote a letter that basically says this. He says, folks, it's time to start using this faith that you're so proud of. It's time to start applying this faith that you're so excited about. In fact, he puts it in a very abrupt, uh, in-your-face kind of way. He says, if you don't use your faith for all practical purposes, it's worthless. If you don't apply what you know, it's of no use to you. He's saying... On this side of eternity, faith that is not applied is worthless, it's useless, it's dead. On this side of eternity, in this life, it won't do you any good. Because faith, if it's going to have any impact in your life now, today, faith must be applied. It has to be put into practice. Now, let me tell you why this is such an incredibly relevant topic. Let me give you some background. I grew up in a religious tradition that emphasized becoming a Christian so you could go to heaven when you die. Pretty much all the preaching was about that one topic, going to heaven when you die. And the way that worked when I was a teenager is that once, uh, once a year in the summer, we would have a camp or a retreat, and you were at camp for five or six days, and uh, on Friday night or sometimes Saturday night, they would have this, this, this huge service, and the youth evangelist would preach a very heavy message to feel to make you feel uh, guilty and then he would call on you to make a decision to pray the prayer and become uh, a Christian and then we lots of people did that lots of people did it year after year after year and then uh, after you did it you would run and you would tell your parents uh, you call your parents and, and and tell them what had happened and they were really excited because here's the thinking that, uh, that Christianity is kind of like this disease, and I hope my kids get it. Now, this is going to surprise some of you, but I remember when I was growing up, we didn't have vaccines for everything. We had the polio vaccine and that kind of thing. But, but the way that I was exposed to chicken pox, measles, and mumps is that when one of the neighborhood kids got one of those diseases, the parents all got together and we had a party, like a chicken pox party, so that all of us would get it. And we would get the measles and the mumps that way. And, and, and I'm, I'm still here alive to tell about it. So 
Um, but that's the, th that, that's the way it is. That, that's kind of like the thinking. If I can just get my kids to catch the disease, if I can get it in them, if I can get them to pray that prayer, then whew, I can relax because they're a Christian and they're going to become something good for God. They're going to become this wonderful Christian per person. And in the tradition I grew up in, uh, churches had revivals a couple of times a year. And the idea was to get the adults together and do the same thing as the students. And so the evangelist would come in and preach a sermon and it'd be all, like all hellfire and you may think you are, but you're probably not because you're doing these five sins. And if you're doing these five sins, so you were never saved to start with. And the idea was to get all the people who thought they were but weren't to pray the prayer. And uh, the idea was that the Holy Spirit would uh, move in and then sort of magically, mysteriously, their lives would change and they would be better husbands and better wives and better parents and better kids. And it was all just supposed to happen by itself when you prayed the prayer. But the problem was it wouldn't always take with everybody. Like, like you know, half the time, uh, half of the students who prayed the prayer, within a week they were back to their old ways and the assumption was, well, I took them to the chicken pox party, but it just didn't take. You know, like it just didn't take. You know, they were exposed to the disease, the gospel, but it just didn't take. And so the next summer, you round them all up and send them to another camp. And another preacher goes through the same thing. And, and you're hoping that maybe they'll catch the disease next time. And that was pretty much the whole cycle of church life. And the same thing was true with some of those adults at revivals meetings. It didn't always take. And so we told ourselves, well... They had head faith, but they didn't have heart faith. Uh, and I remember preachers talking about head faith and heart faith. And as a kid, it would scare me to death because I'd be like, well, I, 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 what if I have head faith and I'm going to go to hell when I die? Like, what if I only have head faith? And so I, just about every other Sunday night, I would walk down to the front because I wanted to really, really, I was trying really, really hard to really, really believe. And just about every Sunday night, I'd be praying, Lord, I really mean business this time. I really want that hard faith that everybody's talking about. I don't want to just have head faith and go to hell when I die. And, and, and it was just that cycle over and over and over again. Now, you know what James would say about all that? James would say that's hogwash. All right, too strong. I can tell by the silence in here. But uh, James would say that's nonsense. That's not Christianity. That's not the way of Jesus. I mean, take a Bible and show me anywhere in the Bible where Jesus or the disciples said or did anything remotely close to that. It's not there. Christianity is not like some kind of disease you get by praying a prayer and then magically and mysteriously your life changes. That's not how it works. Now, some of you grew up in a different tradition. You grew up in a tradition, you grew up in homes where your parents made sure that as soon as you were born, you were baptized as a baby. And, uh, and you were baptized or christened into that particular religion or into that church. And so as soon as you're, you were born, the thinking was, the next goal for you was to get you to the priest or to the church as soon as possible to get you sprinkled. Because that was somehow mysteriously supposed to preserve you or give you a better quality of life or guarantee that you would go to heaven when you die. And in fact, some of you who have come out of that kind of uh, church tradition, your parents aren't really happy with you now because you're coming to this church and they're saying, well, you may have left the church, but my grandbabies are going to be sprinkled. I'm telling you that right now. And they're putting all this kind of pressure on you and, and because there's this thinking that if I can just get them in the water... 
then something magically and mysteriously is going to happen and there'll be better people as a result of it. Now, please hear me. I am not making fun of any of this. I'm just saying, and the, and the people who led those revivals and those youth meetings, they're all very sincere. I benefited as uh, growing up from those kinds of things. What I'm saying is that the belief system is if I can just get them through the process, then whew, I can just breathe a sigh of relief because some, something mysterious will happen and they'll be okay. And James is going, where'd you get that idea? That's not Christianity. That's not the way of Jesus. You don't see that in Scripture. Now, there's another group of you, and you grew up in a tradition that was totally focused on believing the right things. And week after week, your pastor would preach doctrinal sermons, and he would say, this is what the Bible teaches, and this is what we believe, and the whole goal was to get you to believe the right things. And, and so they would say, well, that first whatever church down the road on the left they're heretics because they believe these three things and we don't. Or that church down on the right, they're wrong because they don't believe these three things that we do, and so they're all heretics. And we are the correct and true church because we know the truth pretty much about everything. And every Sunday morning was a theology lesson, and, uh, and you grew up really trying hard to be sure you believed the right things and obeyed the right rules and, and the list that those churches adhered to. And, of course, your parents, they wanted you to believe the right things, but any time you ask a difficult question at home or expressed any doubt, man, the ground would shake, and you would be told, if you didn't believe the truth, you just forget all that stuff that you're thinking about. If you don't believe the truth as defined in that church, you're going to go to hell. And sadly, many of those churches had emphasized believing the right things, and they probably did believe the right things. But those churches were filled with people who were mean-spirited and antagonistic and racist and separatistic. And those churches fought with the culture and they fought with other churches and they fought within their own church. And every month you'd hear about another church like that that would end up splitting. Somehow they believed the right things, but it didn't translate into Jesus-like behavior. And you know what James would say? That's not it either. That's part of it because it's extremely important, eternally important that you believe the right things. But here's what James is saying. If that's all there is to it, your faith is worthless. This side of eternity, it's useless. I'll say one more time. I'm not making, making fun of any of this. I've been in all of these kinds of churches, and I have benefited from those churches I was baptized as an infant. I walked the aisle over and over again to make sure I was saved. I taught in one of those believe right churches. The point is, the belief system behind these traditions, pray the prayer, baptize your baby, believe the right things, doesn't guarantee a good, solid Christian life. And by the way, those of us who are parents, you know, we want our kids uh, to find and marry a Christian young man or young woman, right? I mean, we should be praying for our kids to, to marry uh, a believer. And so when the daughter comes home and she says, Dad, Mom, I met this great guy, and he asked me to marry him, and I said, yes, and guess what? He's a Christian, meaning he's prayed the prayer and he's in. I mean, we're relieved because we think, well, if she's a Christian and he's a Christian and they get married, they're going to have a Christian home, right? 
uh, the thinking is if you put Christian A and Christian B together, it'll be a Christian home. You know what James would say? James is saying putting two Christians together doesn't guarantee anything. Putting two people together who believe the right stuff doesn't guarantee anything. Putting two people together who have prayed the prayer and are going to heaven when they die, that doesn't guarantee a Christian relationship. It doesn't guarantee a Christian dating relationship. It doesn't guarantee a Christian marriage. It doesn't guarantee a Christian home or a Christian business or not even a Christian church. It doesn't guarantee a Christian church. Here's what James would say. That kind of faith where you simply believed four gospel sentences, that kind of faith where you were baptized at exactly the right time in exactly the right way, that kind of faith where you've got all your doctrinal I's dotted and T's, theological T's crossed and believed all the right stuff, that kind of faith, James is saying, won't do you one single bit of good in this life. There is no inherent value this side of eternity in believing all the right stuff unless you put your faith into action. And this is one of James' big ideas in the book. And this morning, I want to show you how James develops that message in this letter. And we're going to do it as kind of a flyover or an overview of the big idea of the book. And I want to give you some handles or some lenses that will help you better understand the book. Because if you start from the wrong foundation or the wrong premise, it can be very confusing when you try to make sense out of what James teaches about how faith and works fit together and what Paul says in Romans and Galatians that you're saved by faith in Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. How do those two things fit? And even Martin Luther had problems trying to make them fit. So I want to give you some lenses to look through that Luther didn't have and uh, help you read and study through the book. That'll help you read and study through the book over the next couple of months. So take your Bible and turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And by the way, if this is your first time with us this morning, we are so glad that you've chosen to worship with us. And uh, one of the things that you'll find if you attend here on a regular basis is that most often we are studying our way through whole books of the Bible. And we're beginning a study in the book of James right now. And one of the things that we believe makes this community of faith a, a bit distinctive is that Each week, we take a Bible and we open it, and we ask God to make what was written long ago, make it come alive in our lives today. And our desire is to kind of trim away churchianity, our culturalized versions of Christianity, and get back to what authentic Christianity is really like. And we particularly in this study want to understand what a living, active faith in Jesus looks like. James chapter 1, verse 1, James begins by saying, James, he introduces himself, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the writer is James, a servant. That's how he identifies himself. And I think that's significant because most scholars believe that this, is, this James is the James that was the half-brother of Jesus And so, at the outset of the book, if he wanted to try to prove himself and prove his importance, he could have begun by saying, James, the half-brother of Jesus, Messiah, our Lord. But he didn't do that. All he he does is say, I'm James, the servant of Jesus. Also, we learn from the book uh, book of Acts that this James was the leader of the new church in Jerusalem, and he presided over 
uh, very important church council meetings. And uh, that can be a temptation for us, just like, you know, we kind of want to prove ourselves by name dropping an important person that we're connected with. But we can also be a temptation for some of us to prove how important we are by using what we do or the job or the position we have kind of to gain um, uh, the upper hand. But James doesn't use his leadership position to hold some kind of authority over the heads of his leaders. He simply says, I'm James, I'm a servant. Of Jesus. Now, you might not know this, but this letter from James was probably the first New Testament book that was written. My friend and former professor Zane Hodges, who now is uh, with the Lord, says that uh, this book was written before the Gospels. It was written before Paul wrote uh, Galatians and Romans, written probably somewhere between 34 and 35. A.D., maybe as late as 40, but it was written in the early days of the new church before the gospel moved across racial and cultural barriers in, in the spirit-led mission uh, to the Gentiles. And that accounts for the distinctive Jewish flavor of the book. And as, we, as you'll see when, as we go through this, there are many allusions to Old Testament themes, especially the book of Proverbs. And in a very real sense, you could say that James is to the New Testament what Proverbs is to the Old Testament, and that is wisdom literature. Now, the fact that this was the very first New Testament book that was written is interesting to me because think about this. What was the very first Old Testament book that was written? Job, that's right. Not Genesis, but Job. And what was Job about? Basically, Job was about how difficult life is, how life is filled with disappointments and discouragement and unexpected disasters and disease. And so the first thing that God wanted to communicate to us was that life in this fallen, broken world is hard and painful. And the answer to the pain and the suffering is not an explanation for why bad things happen to us, not a formula, not a philosophy. No, the answer to the pain and suffering in this following, uh, fallen world is God himself. Now think about that. Before God wanted to tell, tell us how the world was made and, and, and who we are and where we came from and where it's all headed, the first thing God wanted us to know that life in this fallen world is difficult and it's filled with trials and troubles and temptations. And it's interesting to me that the very first book in the New Testament deals with basically the same idea, and that is that life is difficult and hard and painful and full of trials and temptations. That's the very first book in the New Testament, and James talks about that, and James even makes the connection to Job in chapter 5, verse 11. Now, this book hinges on two passages. The first is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So look at James 1, beginning in verse 1 again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance or faithfulness. Let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. And then verse 12 says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast in the trial. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the readers, the intended audience of this letter are Jewish Christians, the 12 tribes who have been dispersed and scattered across the Roman Empire. Early in the book of Acts, we read about how the new church in Jerusalem, led by James, was growing and thriving, and believers were living together, sharing life together, sharing what they had with one another, caring for the poor and widows and orphans and marginalized, and they were a true community of faith, putting Jesus on display in their world. But in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we learn that after one of the church leaders, Stephen, was stoned to death, an intense persecution broke out against the church, and those Jewish Christians were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria and then on through the empire. And so when James writes in verse 2 about encountering various trials, he knows that those various trials included things like losing everything you own, your house, your land, your livestock, your business. Various trials included running for your life with, with only the clothes on your back and not knowing where your next meal was going to come from. He was talking about living an underground kind of life because they were run out of, when they were run out of Jerusalem, uh, there were religious bounty hunters like Saul, who later became Paul, and, who, and these guys went out on expeditions to hunt down these Christians, these Jewish Christians, because those Jewish Christians were considered heretics and subversives, and the goal was to arrest them and take them back to Jerusalem and put them in jail or kill them. So no doubt they had lost friends and family members, and they lived under constant threat of life. And I don't think we can even imagine the emotional, physical, financial, spiritual pain and struggle that these people were going through. James knows that the life of faith is a life of difficulty. And so the hope of this letter, written by their former pastor in Jerusalem, was that it would slowly make its way around to these cities and towns across the empire and find its way into house churches where all these dispersed Jewish Christians were trying to make a life out of the mess that had happened to them. And the hope was that this letter would encourage them to remain steadfast and faithful to Jesus. Now, you know this is true, but difficult times can cause even the best of us to live selfishly, right? Difficult times can cause even the best of us to live selfishly. Now, when things get tough, we tend to pull in, circle the wagons, think about ourselves, resent the people who don't have the problems that we have, even blame God. And I know that's true of me. I mean, when things get tough, I become more critical and negative, and, and my tongue starts wagging with unloving talk. And when things get tough, I, I, I just sometimes just want to pull in and shut down and like one of my greatest temptations when things get hard and seem hopeless, I just want to get in the Jeep and drive to the mountains and get a cook job in some little diner and flip burgers and just live by myself. And uh, you know what I mean. But the stress caused by all these difficult trials, in all, uh, the, the stress from these trials resulted in all kinds of problems 
and temptations within the community of faith. They struggled just like us. That's why James calls them out on their quarrels and conflicts with one another in chapter 4. That's why James rebukes them for showing favoritism towards more wealthy members or potential members in the church hope because they're hoping to, that those wealthy members will help them and they're being manipulative. That's why James uh, calls them out for their sharp, critical tongues in chapter 3 and for living like people who don't even know God in chapter 4 and being stingy with their money rather than being generous in chapter 5 and making plans without involving God in those plans. And so when you look back at how the new church in Acts lived in community before the persecution broke out, loving one another, caring for one another, sharing with one another, and then you read what James writes in this letter to these hurting, scattered believers, it seems to me that James is addressing a drift away from that close, loving community. And he's writing to call them back to the kind of community that they once enjoyed. A kind of community that made much of Jesus and put him on display in their neighborhoods, in their, in their homes and workplaces. And the way James, get this now, the way James addresses the drift is by calling the community of faith to put their faith into action to put their faith into action. Now, let me show you the second key passage uh, that helps explain this. Turn over to chapter two and look at verse 14. Chapter two, verse 14. James writes, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, my brother, be warm, my sister, be filled, and you don't give them anything that they need for their body, what good is that? So also faith, by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Now, to understand what James is saying here, you need the right set of lenses through which to read these verses. And we're going to come back and unpack these passages in more detail in the weeks to come. But for now, remember, this is just a flyover so we can get our heads around what this little letter of James is, is all about. So what are these new lenses, the new lenses we need to read and understand and apply the teaching of James? The first lens is understanding that James is not talking about eternal salvation He's talking about experiential salvation. He's, he's talking about e not talking about eternal salvation, but experiential salvation. Now, when we read the question in verse 14, he's talking about this, this, this he makes up this person, and, and the person says, well, I have faith. Uh, am I, am I, I might not be living the way you tell me to. Uh, James says, can that faith save him? Now, many of us tend to read that through the lens of eternal salvation. In other words, we read, can that, take, can that faith take him to heaven when he dies? Right? That's the way I heard this taught most of my life. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. And there's a truth in that. We, we are not saved by works, but if faith has no works, it really is no faith at all. It's not going to take you to heaven when you die. And, and that, and in fact, this passage right here was one of those brow-beating passages 
in revivals and at youth camps to prove to us that if you're doing this list of things, see, you were never saved to start with. But James is not answering the question, how can we go to heaven when we die? James is answering the question, how can we be saved through trials? Saved through pain and hardship. You see, saved or salvation is like the word dozen. Dozen doesn't tell you much unless you know what you're talking about. A dozen what? A dozen eggs, a dozen pencils, a dozen firecrackers. Saved is like that. It doesn't always refer to eternal salvation. It can also refer to experiential salvation. Now let me show you this in a different way. The Bible teaches us that there are three tenses of salvation. Three tenses of salvation. There's salvation past tense, and that is, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. When I put my faith and trust in Christ, I was saved from the penalty of my sin, and I'm going to heaven when I die. Then there's salvation, present tense, and that is, I am being saved from the power of sin, meaning I am being saved from the corruption that's in the world through lust, as Paul talks about. I'm being saved through trials and the troubles of this life and the negative consequences uh, that come to me when I live selfishly in the midst of those trials. And then there's salvation future tense, and that is when I die and I go to heaven, when I die and I spend eternity in the presence of God and the kingdom of God, I will forever be saved from the presence of sin. And theologians talk about this as justification, I have been saved through faith in Christ. I'm saved from the penalty of my sin. Sanctification, I am being saved day by day from sin. And then glorification, I I will one day be saved, future tense, uh, from the presence of sin. The point is this. To be saved means more than going to heaven when you die. And in the book of James, to be saved means saved through trials, saved through present suffering, not saved from present suffering and hardship, but saved through them, preserved, brought safely through tough times with my faith intact, and saved from the negative consequences of living a selfish life that I'm tempted to live in the midst of pain, you see. So James is not talking about salvation as the way to life. He's talking about salvation as a way of life. Faith is the way we enter into life with God. Faith in Christ alone is the way that we enter into life with God. Faithfulness, meaning faith in action, is the way we experience life with God. Water will not quench your thirst unless you drink it. Bread will not satisfy your hunger unless you eat it. Medicine will do you no good unless you take it as prescribed. And James is saying the same thing about faith. Faith will not save you from the power and the consequences of sin now. Faith will not keep you safe in trials unless it expresses itself in visible, tangible ways. So to accurately read and understand and apply what James teaches, we need a different lens. Not the lens of eternal salvation, but the lens of experiential salvation. And James is not talking about being saved from hell. 
and going to heaven when you die. He's talking about being saved through trials and through troubles. Now, closely tied with this is another lens we need uh, to correctly read and apply to the teaching of James um, for our lives. Now, so the second lens is this. James is not so much about believing the gospel because he was convinced that the people that he was writing to, they had believed the grace of the gospel. But he's interested in behaving the gospel. And I know like in a church like ours that magnifies grace, we hardly ever use the word behave because it's like we know that there's more to our walk with God than behavioral modification. And that's all true. But uh, we, we, the problem is we tend to read the Bible through the lens of what we need to believe, which is absolutely true and right and eternally important. And again, James' readers have got that right. But James is more concerned about how we live out our faith. He's more concerned with how his hurting, suffering friends are applying the gospel within the community of faith. And that's why he uses behavioral language. Like he says in chapter 1, verse 22, don't just hear the word, do the word. Do something with it. Don't just hear it. Don't just believe it. Do it. That's why he says in chapter 1, verse 27, that pure and genuine religion or pure and genuine faith means caring for widows and orphans in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. He says in chapter 3, verse 13, show your faith by living in an honorable way and living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes through wisdom. So James is saying what you believe needs to translate into Jesus-like, love God, love others behavior, or it's not going to help you make it through the trial, and it's not going to help anybody else when they go through their trials. Look at verse 15 again. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, but you don't give them the things that they need for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Not talking about going to heaven when you die, not talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about <coughs> experiencing the life of God now. And you can see in these verses how James is emphasizing the practical application of gospel faith. A slightly different way of putting it is like this. James is not thinking about the content of their faith. Again, he assumes he's writing to people who have believed the truth and the promises of the gospel. He's not thinking about the content of their faith. He's thinking about and talking about the character of their faith. Not belief, but behavior. Faith expressing itself in tangible actions. And his question is, and these are questions that we need to think about for our own lives, but does your faith work? Does it make a difference in your life and the lives of other people? Does your faith translate into actions that help other people going through pain and suffering? That's verses 15 and 16. Has nothing to do with eternal salvation. Does your faith express itself in tangible actions that show love for God and love for others? If not, he says, for all practical purposes, this side 
of eternity, it's useless. Now, you see, according to the Bible, God's actions reveal God's character. In other words, the Bible tells us that God loves us. But how do we know that God loves us? Well, we know that he loves us because he came to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and he allowed himself to be crucified on the cross so the penalty of our sin could be removed, so that the power of sin could be broken, so that one day we would forever be removed from the presence of sin in the kingdom of God, and so that we could enjoy eternal life that starts now and goes on forever because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We know that God loves us because his love became visible and tangible and touchable through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God's actions reveal his character. In other words, God's actions put who he really is on display. And the same thing is true for Christians, both then and now. Our actions reveal our character. Our actions tell people that our faith is genuine. Or said another way, our actions, our behavior, puts our faith on display for all to see. Now, James is writing to remind us how faith should work, how it should express itself in love for God and love for others when we go through hard times. And so for James, believing is not just trusting four gospel facts that take you to heaven when you die, as important as that is. It's tr for James, faith is trusting that Jesus' way of living is the right way to live. It's the best way to live. And trusting it enough that we're willing to live that way and die that way. Now think about it. Does the fact that a person has faith that they're going to heaven when they die, can that faith save a marriage? Can that faith deliver you from bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness? Does the fact that you believe the right things about the cross, will that faith save you from the present consequences of lying or cheating or adultery? Will simply believing the gospel cause you to hang tough in the midst of trials if you lose your health or your house, or a loved one, will that faith save you through those kinds of things? No, only a faith that is put into action saves. Only a faith that is put into action saves us in the here and now. So to read and understand and apply what James tells us in his letter, we need the right set of lenses. We need to understand that James is is talking about experiential salvation, how we're saved in the midst of trials and suffering, not eternal salvation, and that we also need the lens that tells us that James is calling us to Jesus-like behavior, not simply to believe the things we need to believe to enter into a relationship with God. And why is that so important? Why spend a whole letter on that to his friends? Because James knows that the life of faith is a life of difficulty, and and he knows that to make it through the inevitable difficulties that come into our lives, it is absolutely essential that faith be put into action. Because faith by itself, if it's not applied, really does you absolutely no good. But James is saying, if you learn to apply your faith, then you'll experience real life with God. 
you will experience a close, intimate relationship with God no matter what comes into your life. I mean, isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you want for your kids? This fall, we're going to answer the question, what does living active faith look like? What is active, application-oriented faith looks like? And James answers that question for us in this little five-chapter book. The book of James is about how God wants you and me to be strong and, set, and steadfast and faithful when trials and troubles come into our lives. You interested in any of that? Stay tuned. There's more to come. Father God, thank you that when you put the 66 books that became our canon of Scripture together, you started with Job that tells us how hard life is and how it, sometimes it's hard to make sense out of, of what, uh, what happens to us, the trials and troubles and difficulties that come into our life. And we thank you for that out of these 66 books, you gave us a book of the New Testament that basically tells us the same thing. And Lord, there's not a person in here that doesn't know how hard life really is. Oh, we, no doubt we have it easier than people living in many other places in the world, but still, our troubles are our troubles. Our trials are our trials. Our temptations are our temptations. And we know that the life of faith is the life of difficulty. So God, as we start this journey in James, would you help us to understand in a very personal way what it means what it means for me to put my faith into action given the circumstances in my life right now whatever i'm going through give me the wisdom to know how my faith should be applied in the midst of my circumstances, good or bad. That's what we need, and thank you for putting James in the Bible to help us learn how to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.